Hello, and welcome to No Time for Caution, a podcast about Interstellar. I'm your host, Andy. I am the curator of QuantifiableConnection.com. I am an interstellar addict, a Matthew McConaughey convert, and assuming I dip into my 403B and pay a 40% penalty, potentially a future Lincoln owner. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in last week. I appreciate all your comments, and I hope you'll stick with me. This podcast is a recurring feature of QuantifiableConnection.com, which is itself the quantification of my love for this film. Each episode will discuss a new interstellar topic with unflinching sincerity and a heavy dose of humor. I am incredibly pleased to welcome back to the show this week my good friend Tim. Tim is a professor of economics in Los Angeles, California. He is the entertainment coordinator for the Assisted Living Center in beautiful Anaheim. He is a divorcee and a former Mr. Universe. But most of all, he is an all-around great guy. Tim, thank you so much for joining me, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's great to be on the podcast again. I'm surprised. You know, I'm surprised I'm I'm back on, given my uh, my bio there. It sounds like I'm a busy man. Well, back by uh, you know popular demand, actually by popular demand of most of the people at that assisted living center. They're avid listeners. Yeah, they're uh, you know it's it's great to uh, to put on uh, entertainment for those that are kind of near the end. It's uh, they they like the vaudeville performance. Oh, what kind of vaudeville? Well, you know, I, I have sort of a, a ventriloquist act. What's his name? Uh, his name is Woody. Okay. He's a wooden. He's a wooden. Uh, I, I am the uh, you know manipulator in this situation. Woody, that's a little on the nose, isn't it? It's, it's we, we that the first five minutes of the act is pretty much uh, you know he, he's like ah could I have gotten a better name you know <laughs> you get to choose the dummy but the dummy doesn't get to choose the ventriloquist right and then the people love that so I, I that's pretty much I can uh, live off of you know the money I make from that what percentage uh, of them are awake during the act <laughs> well I mean there's various states of wake. When you uh, need uh, assistance to live, I think so. <laughs> I guess that's true. Uh, if they're if they're even in twilight sleep, you've put on a pretty entertaining performance. Yeah, it's pretty much you know you get you uh, you want to ease them into their fever dreams. So I, I do my best on that front. And uh, for the ones that are fully awake, you know, usually they're looking for the nurse to uh, help them with their medicine, dispense medicine. So. I don't think anybody's giving me their full undivided attention, but you know, I'm not giving my full undivided effort uh, when I'm up there doing my shows. Well, I think that's fair. Uh, when I go on dates, you know, of course, I like to talk a lot about myself and my 31 years of accomplishments. And uh, it's a good topic, yeah. Yeah, sometimes they kind of tune in and out. My rule of thumb is generally they're having a good time. If it would hurt to do dental work on them right now. <laughs> so. it's a good good way to you know good philosophy for life yeah speaking of philosophy tim there's this movie called interstellar you oh it? yeah I've, I've heard of it yeah i saw it uh, a couple of times sure yeah great film and uh this is a podcast about it so i'm going to transition out of the first phase 
Ah. and get on with the show. Very well, very well. Get down to business. Uh, this week, we're going to be discussing the humanity of Tars and Case. Now, the first couple times I saw the movie, I thought they were cool characters, but not necessarily worthy of further study. But I guess when you see something 29 times, the layers kind of start to peel away without any help. So... I guess it makes the most sense to start a little bit with their uh, physical attributes. Sure, yeah, I was going to mention that. That's probably the most obvious thing. You, you mentioned humanity being the theme this week, and very, very interesting. They don't have the anthropomorphic uh, form. It's it's basically like a rogue uh, a rogue Rubik's cube or something. Interestingly enough, in Jonathan Nolan's original draft. They were meant to resemble humans, and then in his revision, uh, Christopher Nolan decided that he didn't think that necessarily made sense. And so the philosophy that he uh, gave the production designers as a basic premise was uh, function over form. Everything was uh, supposed to be logical and useful. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. There's actually some parallels between TARS and CASE and the Endurance uh, with respect to adaptability in making uh, the most of the space you have. Yes. For instance, on the Endurance, the chairs that they sit in retract into the wall. And then in the briefing before Miller's Planet, they're looking at the data on an LED screen. And then Cooper actually flips it over and it becomes a dry erase board where he draws up his... Uh, piloting plan, and so I guess it's about making the most of the very limited resources at your disposal. Yeah, it makes sense. They were, you know, constrained as they were on uh, back on Earth. And the one thing I noticed—I I don't know if it was just the whole production aesthetic—but like Tars and Case, they would sometimes blend in with their surroundings in the background while on the endurance that. It kind of, and especially if you don't see like uh, with the robots, their mouths moving. Sometimes it's like not disorienting, but you're like, wait a minute, where's that voice coming from? And then you're looking for some sort of visual cue and it's, you know, you see TARS, but sort of dark lighting and things like that. So it's, it's kind of hard to pick them out. So it's almost like an extension of the ship at the same time, too. Yeah. And uh, actually in the briefing scene, uh, TARS is there, but he's sort of looming in the background the entire time and he doesn't say anything uh so like you said he's kind of blending into his surroundings until he uh picks that moment to make his quip sure sure yeah it had to be very challenging uh portraying tars with respect to the physicality uh so bill Irwin, the actor who portrayed tars he would uh operate tars in case uh move them around using I think it was a compressed air system because the metal was so heavy they had to find a way to move it. But so there's not really a lot that the actors had at their disposal to bring the characters to life. And so uh, it reminded me a little bit of um, Star Trek The Next Generation. Do you remember uh, LeVar Burton on that show? He had that uh, visor. Oh, sure, yeah. So he would talk about how difficult it could be to uh, convey emotion and tone because he couldn't use his eyes. So, sure. yeah, he had to gesture a lot and rely on his voice. And here, 
all Bill Irwin and Josh Stewart, the actors portraying uh, Tars and Case, have to rely on are their vocal performance. And then in some instances, uh, you'll actually see Tars physically turn to someone to indicate that that's the individual to whom he's talking. Otherwise, it could get very chaotic. Yeah, yeah, that would that had you have to have that as sort of a visual cue there. And it's also kind of interesting with them that there's a scene where McConaughey sort of reprogramming, uh, I believe it was Tars, like setting the uh, the humor level like at seventy five percent and things like that. So it's kind of the acting for the robots. You know, a lot of it is sort of you know it was already sort of predetermined. So it's almost like it's almost like an extension of like McConaughey in some sense in terms of how they're acting and how they're responding is just sort of uh, programmed into them into the first place. Yeah, that's the the whole uh, the whole settings thing is very interesting and also I guess probably uh, specific thoughts maybe about Tars later on. But but yeah, just taking uh, the settings as a concept, uh, one of the reasons it's fascinating to me is uh, I don't think it's necessarily uh, that different than the way human behavior is determined. So, so for instance, uh, when I was a kid, uh, my brother uh, got this like horrible haircut. And, you know, of course, my mom was like, look, your brother got this haircut. It's the stupidest fucking haircut I've ever seen. Like, no one has ever looked stupider than your brother does right now. Whoa, whoa, your but, mom's saying this? This is this does not sound like your mother, Andy. Well, you, you have to read between the lines with my mom. She says oh. so much that she doesn't say, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, this is, this is true. Yeah, you have a, a line of programming with her that I, I'll never understand, so. Yeah, like, just the other day, she said, happy birthday, and I knew oh. that that meant fuck you. Yeah, that's a loaded statement right there, coming from anybody but your mom. Jeez. Yeah, what's so good about it? I'm 31 years old. I'm in my 30s, and she knew that. She knew that. She's counting down the time. She's counting the sand in the lower chamber, so. Yeah, no, it's like the world's worst game of boggle being alive. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel about it. Back to the humanity. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, yeah, let me <laughs> let me just dial back my bitter setting to 60 so we can continue. Let's do that. Let's do that. That's but yeah, fun. so you know, you know when your mom says if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all or, you know, sure. I, she's going to be real self-conscious about this. She's in effect um, you know, adjusting your honesty parameter or when someone tells you a secret, they're adjusting your discretion setting. Sure. Uh, and in a piece on the site, actually, interestingly enough, uh, I quoted the 1942 Army Field Manual, which says, uh, discipline should not be new to you, for you have been disciplined all your life. And uh, I think that's especially relevant because TARS and CASE were initially conceived as military personnel. Yeah, Marines, right? They were Marines, right. And so in that sense... Uh, they're not any different than the soldiers. I suppose the the ways you reinforce behavior are different. So, for instance, with TARS and CASE, it could literally be a dial or a button you press, whereas with the human marines, 
that behavior is modified through uh, punishment and reward and repetition. Yep, yep, makes sense. So, so if you look back at um, robots in popular culture, and I guess specifically in the context of like military or, or space stuff, there's not um, there's not a sense that they're part of the the crew. There's no uh, personhood there. Right. So, for instance, in 2001, A Space Odyssey, Hal is uh, treated essentially as an inanimate object performing a, a function, and, and he's not recognized as an individual. Right. And it's it's always like, yeah, like like some view of the future, you know, involving robots. It's, they're, they're second class at, at best in terms of, uh, you know, their membership with society. So it's kind of like once the, all this new technology comes along, they're you know they're not considered equals. It's it's kind of like man trying to uh, establish other things so that they can reassert their dominance as sort of you know the dominant species, the top of the food chain. It's kind of interesting how that plays out in terms of how the characters, the robot characters, interact with the humans. Yeah, I think that's true, and what's sort of ironic about it, I guess, is that in minimizing the machine's sentience, they're uh, disregarding their their own innovation and uh, their abilities as creators. Right, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you see a lot of the treatment of robots as a subhuman proletariat in literature and film. I think the very first um, piece of literature to use the phrase robots was a play by a Czech author named Carol Kapik called uh, Rossum's Universal Robots. And that was how he envisioned them, sort of an underclass, and their natural intelligence was ignored. And you can see this in uh, Blade Runner and iRobot and uh, mm -hmm. a number of other similar pieces. And so, yeah, inevitably, the uh, the machines rise up. That's really... Any piece of fiction where the robots are treated as central characters, you can usually assume it's going to end in a slave revolt. Yeah, I mean that that seems like the what would happen. Certainly, the worst case is like this. You know, you can't foresee it happening. You know, with with other human beings, but if you have artificial intelligence, eventually they have you know, almost infinite capacity to store information. At some point, it's got to balloon to world domination and enslaving the humans. Yeah, and uh, I think the one that scares me the most has to be uh, Terminator, because it's th th they didn't for foresee that they were creating something intelligent. Then all of a sudden, uh, Skynet comes online, world domination, Sarah Connor has to quit the diner, uh, she's on the run, uh, Edward Furlong is on the run, and, and then he gets into drugs 20 years later. Um, uh, in the film, or? Well, that may not have been part of Terminator. I think I was just watching uh, Inside Hollywood the other day. So. <laughs> That's sometimes hard to tell, yeah. I have to say, though, I was having this conversation with someone the other day. Um, it does seem to me like it's really reckless of us to be inventing artificial intelligence like the, my friend said to me have we not learned anything from 70 years of movies why are we building these things yeah it's all it's just foretelling what's gonna happen yeah 
So is that people just see the advantages, what it can, what it can do, and they don't fully think it out what the consequences are going to be. The you know once, once yeah, especially like once these uh, once machines just sort of have greater capacity to think and reason compared to us. It's like, well, now you know maybe that's why in films we're always enslaving or you know we're making robots second class citizens because we have to sort of. Establish our dominance given that potential. I don't know if that's conscious or not on filmmakers' part, but it seems like, yeah. I mean, if you're developing these machines to do great things, at some point, it's like it's like you play NBA Live, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, in the Sega Genesis days, you're like, okay, roster player, so was a couple of pixels, right? Yeah, and you know, it kind of looks like Michael Jordan, but now 2015 roster player. I mean, that's that's Michael Jordan, right? So then you know, graphically it develops to a certain stage where it's like, I, I can't tell the difference between humanity and, and what's sort of artificial. And so, uh, you know, that outside of the context of a video game, something similar could happen. Uh, you know, if you're interacting day to day with, you know, robots, like a, like a car, or like a TARS or a case. Yeah. It's amazing how lifelike, uh, video games are now. And uh, you and me sort of grew up in that sweet spot where things were uh, transitioning from Mario to the very lifelike uh, video games of today. Yeah. And uh, uh, computer graphics and movies uh, are the same way. Uh, Do you remember a a few years ago, inexplicably, they made a sequel to Tron? Oh, yes, yes, I remember that. So I never saw the original, but I saw that one, and Jeff Bridges is in it, and uh, they show a scene that I assumed was from the original Tron film because he looks like he's in his 30s in it. Yeah. Uh, Found out later that they digitally de-aged him and that the entire thing was filmed in present day, and uh, I was very alarmed. That was some, like, enemy of the state shit to me that they could just or maybe Manchurian candidate, that they could just uh, twist reality like that and convince me so easily of it. Yeah, I I heard that too. And I think I saw uh, the trailer for the new Terminator, and they did something similar with Arnold. I don't know if they're... Maybe they were just using old footage of Arnold, but I, I, I think it may be a similar deal to Tron where they de-aged him or they did something where they, they kind of show Arnold at different stages, uh, you know, when he was this beautiful, young, handsome self. And then now he's like, you know, a, you know, a bloated guy in a leather jacket, pretty much. You know, bloated is such a relative word. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, he's uh, you know, as a former bodybuilder, it's just kind of like, I guess you have a lot of capacity if you're not lifting 400 pounds all the time. That's true. I wouldn't know, you know, yeah, well, I mean, I guess he's lifting it off the couch these days. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if it's in the way, you got to lift it. What can we do? Yeah. Uh, to to stick on that point for uh, just a couple more moments, uh, candidly, I can't remember uh, the book or the author, but I was reading a very interesting piece of nonfiction that theorized that over the next hundred years or so, we are going to be integrating cybernetic components into our bodies to the point where it will bring into question whether we've created a new species or not that's interesting yeah like it starts off with like artificial limbs and things like that but then you know somebody's going to get into the brain andy and I, I'm, I'm a little worried about that 
You know what I think is going to happen like 30 years from now? Yeah, what's that? I think it's going to be, there's going to be a Hulu life experience and a Hulu Plus life experience. <laughs> yeah. So the Hulu Plus experience for 10 bucks a month, you're going to get them, uh, they won't put advertising in your brain. But yeah, if you can't afford to pay 10 bucks a month, like every 20 feet when you're walking to work on the street, you're going to mm -hmm. have to stop because it's going to be like, Ryan Reynolds in. And yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be horrible. Well, they give you the uh, option to uh, skip the ad after 15 seconds or something. So you're kind of standing there like waiting to click through it. And then you got to sit through Priceline Negotiator. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, with the de-aging technology, this means they can bring back Billy Mays now. <laughs> well, that's not a... I mean, well, that's that's a de-dying. That's not de-aging. Billy Mays is the uh, the guy that cleans up the, uh, the the guy with the beard, right? You're damn right he is, yeah. You know, you know he's yeah, I, I passed away, right? Yeah, but I mean, sometimes, you know, maybe it'll be uh, fortuitous, right? Like, maybe I'll be at the supermarket... And my jerk kid like spilled chili all over the floor at home. And oh, I'll be like, I'll be like, damn it, what do I do? And then all of a sudden, Billy Mays pops up in my brain, and he's like, I got a special offer on OxyClean. Oh wow, you know, and I don't think that's too crazy. I think that could actually happen, like uh, happen, like uh, yeah. Google no, my kids are going to be jerks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, no, I didn't think. Well, I. But I, I think the targeting, targeted advertising, which may be a manifestation of your kids being jerks. I'm sure the Oh, the products, trust me, yep. that's a demographic, all right. Yep. <laughs> Jerk kids? Uh-huh. I saw quite a few today, let me tell you. At the senior center? Where were they? Oh, uh, at Jurassic World. So, yeah, the senior center. Ah! Oh, score one went for to Tim. Fantasy Jurassic mm -hmm, World. I turned yeah. that. I'm going to use that bit at the senior center, actually. If Murph Assistant. were listening right now, she'd be putting a binary mark in that composition book. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if Murph is listening, uh, you know, greetings. Uh, it's it's good. It's good. We get good people from the film listening. We're we're in the we're taking a step in the right direction. Murph, if you are listening, I know you may not be enjoying the podcast, but please stay. <laughs> see what i did there yeah yeah so i think uh she might be uh taking books off the shelf to like barricade herself in the room at this point yeah so anyway to wrap that up one day uh the roombas are gonna rise up and kill us all that's basically where that's headed yeah, that's fine but the house will be clean <laughs> the house will be clean because there's always gonna be a jerk kid <laughs> with his chili and uh, <laughs> chili. With jerk kid. I mean, maybe I shouldn't have fed him chili. He was only three, but it's just... <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty hot for a three year old. It's just know. the only thing I know how to make. The wife works long. <laughs> it's it's the whole thing. Yeah. You know, my mom, uh, this uh, my uh, my my dear mother, uh, when they were living, my mom and my dad were living for a time up in Northern California, but they still had their house down here. And I was living at home. This is after college. I guess I was working at the time. My mom, like, they would go away for like you know three, four weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. She would she would basically prepare like like this entire you know like couple of pots of chili before she would leave. <laughs> and I'd get like no joke like a dozen 
Tupperware uh, containers full of chili in the freezer. <laughs> I mean, so, when you eat chili that many times in a row, I guess you're bound to spill it. So maybe I should cut him a break. My yeah. future son. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, well, you know, when your son comes, we'll, uh, you know, we'll deal with it then. We don't have to worry about this type of thing now. True enough. Yeah. So a very different take on the personhood of robots uh, comes from Star Trek The Next Generation with uh, the treatment of the android commander Data. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like maybe a race issue that he's the only one ever promoted on that show. Yeah, I would say so. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, so what's interesting about his character arc is uh, Data wants to become human. He wants to transcend his programming. But the crew of the Enterprise, and in particular Patrick Stewart's Captain Picard, treat him as an equal. They, they treat him as though he's uh, already a human being with uh, desires and feelings and uh, opinions, and so they have a lot of respect for him. And in fact, there's one very interesting episode uh, called The Measure of a Man, in which a Starfleet roboticist uh, wants to experiment on data with the hope of creating uh, an entire race of androids. And uh, so Captain Picard, during some sort of, I don't know what it was, a legal proceeding, court martial, I don't know what they do in outer space. None of our business, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, uh, so Captain Picard gives a very uh, passionate monologue uh, asserting Data's sentience. Is your contention that Lieutenant Commander Data is not a sentient being and therefore not entitled to all the rights reserved for all life forms within this Federation? Data is not sentient, no. Commander, would you enlighten us? What is required for sentience? Intelligence, self-awareness, consciousness. Prove to the court that I am sentient. This is absurd. We all know you're sentient. So I am sentient, but Commander Data is not. That's right. Uh-huh. Why? Why am I sentient? Well, you are self-aware. Ah, that's the second of your criteria. Let's deal with the first, intelligence. Is Commander Data intelligent? Yes. It has the ability to learn and understand and to cope with new situations like this hearing yes what about self-awareness what does that mean why why am i self-aware because you are conscious of your existence and actions you are aware of yourself and your own ego commander data what are you doing now i'm taking part in a legal hearing to determine my rights and status am i a person or property and what's at stake my right to choose perhaps my very life my rights, my status, my right to choose, my life. Well, it seems reasonably self-aware to me, Commander. I'm waiting. This is exceedingly difficult. Do you like Commander Data? I... I don't know it well enough to like or dislike it. But you admire him. Oh, yes. 
it is an extraordinary piece of engineering and programming. Yes, you have said that. Commander, you have devoted your life to the study of cybernetics in general. Yes. And Commander Data in particular. Yes. And now you propose to dismantle him. So that I can learn from it and construct more. How many more? As many as are needed. Uh, hundreds, thousands if necessary. Uh, there is no limit. <sighs> a single data, and forgive me, Commander, is a curiosity. A wonder even, but thousands of datas. Isn't that becoming a race? And won't we be judged by how we treat that race? Now tell me, Commander, what is Data? I don't understand. What is he? A machine. Is he? Are you sure? Yes. You see, he's met two of your three criteria for sentience, so what if he meets the third? Consciousness in even the smallest degree. What is he then? I don't know. Do you? Do you? Do you? So that is consistent with uh, Gene Roddenberry's wildly optimistic uh, view about human nature uh, as it will be in the future. And I think Interstellar treats its machine characters very similarly. Uh, as I was reading Beyond Space and Time, The Making of Interstellar, it's this wonderful coffee table book about the movie, uh, I was really struck by what Jonathan Nolan said. He said uh, that he was intrigued by the idea, what if the most human characters in the film are the non-human characters? Mm-hmm, right. Nolan says that, uh, that Case and Tars are just as marooned in the moment as any of the other characters. And I, I think that's incredibly insightful. And if you think about it, the experience of uh, Tars and Case isn't that different from the experience that uh, our soldiers have when they come home today. So uh, in the movie's timeline, when the war ends so that people can focus on uh, you know, keeping their societies going and investing in agriculture, Tars and Case are out of work. And so it's just like a soldier coming home from Iraq or Afghanistan trying to reintegrate into society or uh, a factory worker who the industry has been replaced by uh, non-sentient machines doing the jobs and so they have to go out and uh, develop a new skill to compete in today's global economy. Yeah and they don't have to worry about you know their own food or anything they don't have to survive on that so they don't have that struggle to deal with. Yeah, I, I guess in some ways they are still uh, fundamentally uh, different beings. But um, I, I think one of the best cases for their sentience is uh, the fact that they have very distinct personalities. Uh, Tars and Case are very different types of people. Right. Yeah, two, two, and it's the same. The, the guy that was... Um... The actor Irwin, that was so he was manipulating both robots. That was his role. Yeah, and that's very interesting. So, in a sense, part of Case's performance is his. Right. Yeah. So, but then different personality. But there's two different voice actors. Yes. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because they are very different, right? So it's, Tars is kind of a wisecracking, uh, you know, like someone you would see like uh, as a sidekick in these type of films, and then. You know, Case was sort of a more serious, sobering type presence. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Tars is a lot more extroverted, has uh, it's kind of a biting sarcasm, can be a bit of a loudmouth. And uh, Case, conversely, like you said, he, he's kind of shy and reserved. He does have a sense of humor. Um, it, it's a lot more dry than Tars, I guess. Like, uh, you know, and he kind of just quietly says, Tars talks plenty for both of us. Mm. But uh, speaking of both of us talking plenty, uh, I need to pay some bills here, so let's take a quick break, and we will be back with you momentarily. Here's the deal. I'm not here to shill you audible.com or dollarshaveclub.com. I don't have a special Amazon link I want you to use that'll kick me a few pennies when you buy something. Though maybe I should look into that. I don't have a PayPal donation button. I don't have Google ads. I don't even make money on the Redbubble t-shirts I sell. This just isn't about that. This is about my love for Interstellar. And as long as I can, I want to keep it pure. That doesn't mean that one day I may not cook up a scheme to make a couple bucks to help cover the basic costs of running the website, but I want to avoid that for as long as possible. The whole point of this is to connect with a community of like-minded individuals who have been as moved by this movie as I have. So if you want to help, just spread the word. Share the link, quantifiableconnection.com. Tell people about this podcast. And uh, if you go to the iTunes store or the Android store, uh, please take a few moments to leave a review. I know this show's not great, so three stars is okay. Pretty sure that keeps me alive in the algorithm. Uh, so, yeah, thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it, and uh, I'll see y'all down the road. So, I think Case and Tars are a lot like people in that their personalities have largely been shaped by their unique personal experiences. So, for the last 10 years, Tars has been working at uh, NORAD with NASA, interacting with humans on a regular basis, fostering relationships. Meanwhile, Case has been idling in orbit for 10 years. Uh, I, I think he went up there with Dr. Man's Lazarus mission, and so, in a lot of ways, his social growth is actually stunted. Yeah, so you got two two robots sub- subject to extremely different conditions, and that I never thought about that, that shaping their personality, because my whole thing was, you know, it's kind of like they were programmed for specific needs, so that, you know, before, say, Case went up for 10 years, or TARS, you know, was joined with the other NASA crew that it was kind of like their personalities were programmed for those experiences. But mm-hmm. then it could very well be the case that, you know, they're reacting to their environment and they're, you know, and if it's TARS being more jovial, yeah, then it could be, you know, you know, then what, what, what's coming? Why, why is he necessarily doing that? Does he want to fit in uh, with this surrounding? Is he just, you know, responding to his environment? You know, I just, uh, for some reason, I, I, you know, I only saw it twice, granted. I, I thought, you know, these were more like they programmed them to react in a way that, you know, it would suit their needs, the, the humans' needs uh, in different situations. But I never thought of them as being reactive. 
Yeah, I can definitely see that view. Uh, there's sort of this sense that their personalities are uh, complementary. It's sort of like the how you can have two different friends, and one of them you really enjoy hanging out with because uh, he or she is boisterous and loud and fun and everything's a party. Mm-hmm. Then, there's, then there's some days where you really just kind of want to sit in the same room with someone and you can both be reading a book and you occasionally talk to one another, but it's a very different energy in the room. Yeah, that and that would be... Jeez, yeah, that that would be adaptive, I, I suppose. It's not like you're not boisterous all the time. You're not introspective all of the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's it's kind of interesting because it kind of interacts, right? Like there's a reactive part of it, but then you're selecting yourself mm-hmm. into those situations sometimes. I never thought about it like that's interesting. I have a theory, and uh, I'm not totally sure it holds water, but I'll throw it out there. Um, I theorize that Case and Tars don't actually have settings, or or that if they do, it doesn't directly impact their behavior. Uh, with Case, we don't see his settings adjusted throughout the movie. And with Tars, really, no matter what his humor setting is in the film, he always seems to comport himself the same way regardless. This is true, yeah. It's kind of like they were given orders, like, you know, humor setting, 75%. That's no different than, you know, you're, uh, when you're in the military, given an order to act a certain way, right? And it's more like, uh, rather than, you know, we're, that's the setting or calibrating that way, it's, it's more, I understand your command and I'll follow through. Mm-hmm. I guess there's no difference there, right? No, not, not in a functional sense. It's just sort of the mechanism for it. There you go. Um, Tars even shows some emotional intelligence. Uh, Earlier, when they're discussing Miller's planet, like I mentioned earlier, he's in the meeting, sort of hanging in the background. Uh, But when they come back from Miller's planet and they've lost 23 years and Cooper and Brand and Romley are devastated and they're discussing whether to go to Dr. Mann's planet or to go to Edmund's planet. Uh, Tars, you can see in the background in the far distance at one point. And so Tars actually skips the meeting. And I always thought that that was uh, sort of to give them space. And because he knew that uh, the levity he would bring as far as being a humorous creature and the cold logic he would bring as far as being a machine would be unwelcome in that situation. That could be it, yeah. So this kind of kept him in the fringe there. Just uh, It didn't serve as the scene from a filmmaker's perspective, but if uh, it was like a matter of emotional intelligence, he could have dismissed himself there. He's also the first one to openly distrust uh, Dr. Mann. Mm, yes, I do recall that, yeah. Irwin, uh, describing that dynamic, said that he thought uh, Tars got a bad feeling from him, a, a bad intuition, which would be why he uh, changes the endurance docking procedures. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I, uh, it's, it's sort of uh, 
that that one moment where you know he he's sort of uh, you know looking out for the other people on on board. You know, is it him trying to save himself or to save the mission itself? If he gets sort of that bad uh, bad feeling, it's got to be a human trait. That sort of reaction that he gave. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. I never thought of it from the uh, perspective of. Uh, Tara's acting out of a sense of self-preservation there, but uh, that dovetails with what Dr. Mann uh, says to Cooper when he says, uh, you know why they can't send machines on this mission? It's because you can't program them to have a, a fear of death. That's Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. And uh, Dr. Mann also says to Cooper that Cooper has a survival instinct that extends to his children. And maybe we're, we're seeing that at play with TARS. Maybe it's both a sense of self-preservation and uh, out of a sense of uh, affection for his crew. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think one of the reasons TARS distrusts Dr. Mann is because... Uh, do you remember Dr. Mann's robot, Kip? Uh, briefly, didn't he, uh, he was, what, booby-trapped or something, right? He exploded? Right, exactly, yeah. Mm. And so, uh, Dr. Mann previously, uh, dismantled Kip and, uh, uh, used his power source to keep the mission going. And, uh, interestingly to me, uh, it's a very human moment when, uh, Tars, uh, inquires about him. What went wrong with him, sir? Degeneration. He misidentified the first organics we found as ammonia crystals. We struggled on for a time, but ultimately I decommissioned him and used his power source to keep the mission going. I thought I was alone before I shut him down. Would you like me to look at him? No, no. He needs a human touch. So, uh, Dr. Mann uh, kind of blows him off there. Mm-hmm. But Tars is having kind of a visceral reaction like like you would have if you saw someone uh bleeding on the side of the road where you, where you want to take them to the hospital and, and make sure they're cared for sure yeah and so the uh outcome of tar's distrust of dr man is that he changes the endurance docking procedures and so uh this takes us to one of the great moments in the movie one of the great moments in cinematic history and a pivotal moment for both Tars and Case, this is uh, sort of a, a crucible in which their human nature is tested. So uh, Tars is sort of quiet and lays back, and, and he's just ready uh, when Cooper provides orders. Case, uh, throughout the entire movie, has been urging Cooper, who's a very uh, intuitive, instinctual guy, he's been urging Cooper to be more cautious. And so this is an incredible moment of uh, character development for Case. Cooper, there's no point in using her fuel to Analyze chase... Analyze the endurance of spin. Cooper, what are you doing? Docking. Endurance rotation is 67, 68 RPM. Okay, get ready to match our spin with the retro thrusters. It's not possible. No, it's necessary. Endurance is hitting stratosphere. 
got no heat shield. Ace, you ready? Ready. Cooper, this is no time for caution. So you can hear there, Case is very resistant at first, but then once they're actually attempting the docking and Cooper shows hesitation, Case says uh, very aggressively, Cooper, this is no time for caution. So it's kind of like yeah, he's, he's programmed to go along with them or he's saying, okay, well, if this is, this is what we're going to do, you know, then you have to follow through on it. You have to be certain. It's kind of like, yeah, he's, he's personally said, oh, we shouldn't go down this path. But then once Cooper chooses it, he's like, all right, well, we better follow through. Yeah, so I guess at that point, it, it could just be his programming logic determines that there's no way to convince Cooper otherwise. And so the only chance to make the docking successful is uh, for Cooper not to hesitate. I also wonder if that sort of the moment where his sentience elevates itself. So we talked earlier about how TARS has the benefit of 10 years of experiences that Case doesn't. Right. And so throughout the film, we show TARS having affection for Dr. Brand and Romley. Uh, in fact, that's one of the most emotional moments of the movie for me when Kip explodes and kills uh, Romley, as Tars is getting back onto the ship, his right. voice is very thick with emotion when he says, uh, Romley did not survive. I could not save him. Yeah. So then there's clearly, yeah, that's, that's gotta be human at that point. It, you, you know, there's no purpose to program sort of that, uh, emotional waver into his voice there. What you just said there is really interesting to me because it draws me back to uh, Dr. Brand's speech where she says, uh, we love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? Ah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. And so that sort of parallels Tar's experience. There's no functional benefit there uh, to him uh, lingering on what happened to Romley, and yet he does. So so you see that from Tars throughout the movie, and, and Case, like we've discussed, is much more reserved. But here, I think, is his transcendent moment where uh, he realizes how much he cares for them. And to me, uh, the delivery of No Time for Caution comes as him expressing his fear for their well-being. At least that's how I uh, took the actor's delivery. Yeah, yeah, I guess I kind of saw it. I, I see that perspective now, though. I, I saw it more as uh, what you were saying earlier in terms of the programming logic. Well, I guess uh, along every step of the way, he's kind of giving, you know, contingent on what the what Cooper's orders are, he's giving sort of the best advice, right? So it's like mm -hmm. uh, there's sort of the hesitance with some of the proposed plans, but once the orders are given that they're going through with, you know, the docking or whatever, then... You know, it's kind of like, okay, contingent on this, you know, how how can I best preserve humanity, you know, uh, because, you know, part of the mission is also to, you know, take humanity uh, outside of Earth and to sort of protect it. So, I mean, you could always just kind of say, or, you know, it's a cop out to say that, 
oh, well, he's just doing what he's programmed to do there, which is to save humanity. And, you know, it's not necessarily that they're compassionate. It's just that that's what they're programmed to do. And it, it's, it so ha happens that they're looking out for, uh, you know, Cooper and the crew just because it means that uh, they save humanity. And, um, you know, I, I guess it's a little bit how you how you view it. It's not like an absolute thing, right? Because I don't know if you can separate sort of the real uh, sentient reaction. I don't know, but you you would have a better perspective than me. Like, what would be uh, indications that it's really sort of like a, a genuine human concern versus, you know, the, that's what they're programmed to do? I think the moment that sticks out for me on that point is when Romley discusses with Cooper the plan to send TARS into the black hole to collect the quantum data and hopefully relay it to Earth. If he's equipped to transmit every form of energy that can pulse. Just when did this probe become a he, Professor? TARS is the obvious candidate. I've already told him what to look for. I need the old optical transmitter off Kip, Cooper. He'd do this for us. Before you get all teary try to remember that as a robot, I have to do anything you say. Your key lights, broken. I'm not joking. So that moment to me seems to be confirmation that TARS has free will, and not only that TARS has free will, but that Cooper perceives him as having that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I buy that then. Yeah, so then and then you would say, well, Case, Case and TARS pretty much made uh same makers, same idea. They're not like completely different things, but um, well, the, but your thing is more that the TARS kind of got to that level of sentience before Case did. So Case is almost like, you know, uh, not quite as evolved as TARS in some sense. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Bill Irwin uh, said that when he was reading the script, what he was looking for was how TARS and Case saw themselves in the lives of the human characters. And for Taurus, he had 10 years to figure that out after his military service, working with Professor Brand and Dr. Brand and the other uh, folks at NASA, whereas Case didn't have the benefit of that. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. So I guess the last leg of their journey is the series of moments inside the black hole and inside the Tesseract. Mm -hmm. So Taurus uh, communicates with Cooper and serves as something of an intergalactic Sherpa, uh, kind of explaining, I guess, the rules of the Tesseract, kind of helping him understand that it's a uh, three-dimensional representation of five dimensions, uh, and then together they kind of figure out uh, how Cooper can communicate with Murph. But what's most interesting to me is uh, the final moments they share as the Tesseract begins to collapse. I thought you get it yet, Tars. They're not beings. They're us. What I've been doing for Murph, they're doing for me. For all of us. Cooper, people couldn't build this. No. No, not yet. But one day. Not you and me. But a people. A civilization that's evolved past the four dimensions we know. What happens now? 
so it's wonderful the way the way Cooper phrases that not you and me but people so he's being inclusive there of Tars as a human being and so uh, that just shows you uh, how much their friendship has grown over the course of the movie and essentially Cooper very nonchalantly uh, uh, asserts his belief that Tars is a sentient being and an equal Sure, sure. At that at that point of time, too, that state of evolution. So yeah, I think it's really impressive to get that much character development for a robot out of one movie. Well, one movie. I mean, they've had like four movies to get that robot character right, starting with you know a Short Circuit. God damn it, Tim. Tim, uh, you know that's not a, a Christopher but- Nolan movie, okay? Not a name, but, I mean, who knows? People working behind the scenes. He might have been doing some punch-up work back then. Tim, that was Steve Gutenberg in the 1980s. This has been such a good show. Why are you doing this? Well, you know, this is all... uh, Things are written down uh, in the audit process when you're a Scientologist. You know, your your thoughts, your innermost feelings, it's all recorded. So, you know, it may not be... Steve Gutenberg's Interstellar uh, today, but I mean, really, if you followed the timeline, it, it could have been, right? It's just that... Tim, just... <laughs> okay, sorry about that. I, uh, I took a Xanax and we're good, but uh, we better uh, start to, to uh, bring this home. So... Uh, real quick, uh, before we wrap up, Tim, Mm, I'd like to play a little game that I call Robot or Google Search Result. Oh, wow. All right. I'm ready for this. So all of these names are either going to be a robot from film, television, or literature, or they're going to be a Google Search Result. Are you ready? Uh, now, when you say Google search result, I mean, what what's the query here? Like, how are we getting these results? Uh, this means that I hit random letters on my keyboard, and then <laughs> when it said, did you mean, I, collect, I clicked whatever that was. Ah, got it, got it. Okay, that's... <laughs> I might have trouble with this one. All right, let's go. First one. Mm-hmm. Deckard. Deckard, how do you spell that? D-E-C-K... A-R-D. Deckard. So Google's telling me, did you mean Deckard? Well, uh, so film, literature, television. Okay. So not, not, not. So here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lock this in. Not a uh, Google search result. You are correct, sir. Deckard was Harrison Ford's character in Blade Runner. Yes. Okay. Number two. Are you ready? Uh, I am ready. Johnny Five. I just had a hamburger there earlier. That's uh, that's none of the above. But let's see, Johnny Five. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I I'm curious. I, I'm gonna say uh, Google search result. Tim, it's the main character from Short Circuit. What's wrong with you? <laughs> oh, I was just talking God about damn. Johnny Five. Man, yeah, listen to listen to me. Like, uh, yeah, here I am boasting about my uh, knowledge of. Uh, Film robots, I don't yeah. know the main character. No wonder I had to drag you through this show today. God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, so one, 
one for one for two. That's not bad. That's not bad. All right, number three. Are you ready? I think so. Yeah. Stargrove. Well, uh, yeah, that's that's definitely uh, yeah. So this one I know. This one is definitely uh, John Stamos from the from the mid eighties with Stargrove and uh, what Never Too Young to Die. So that's uh, definitely uh, from film there. But he's not a robot for film. It's a Google oh, search result. <laughs> oh, what are these? What this is? Geez, All right, you're really jerking my chain tonight. Now to be man. to be honest, I might not have typed that randomly. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to be adaptable, like Case and Tars. So I'm gonna stand by that one for three. <laughs> I'm not gonna. Not gonna throw that one out for laughs. I'm sorry. No. Okay. Oh my God, I fell for that. It's like I'm at an assembly or something, and that's just like you're both wrong. I'm like, oh, jeez. Yeah, the future is now. All right. Don't you hate those guys? Anybody that says you're both wrong, like that guy's not getting laid anytime soon. I think it's even worse when someone says you're both right. You know what I mean? Because you know that guy's not getting laid anytime soon unless he wants someone else in the room with him. Yeah, it's just too accommodating, too pleasing. That's a total turnoff. Yeah. I mean, I find it's hard to get laid at all in life. (laughs) (laughs) That's just... This is no time for caution, I guess, right? Yeah. It's just me. I've been too busy seeing Interstellar, I guess. But (laughs) All right. Oh, that's funny. Okay. All right. Number four. Back to the game. Yeah, here we go. Yeah. Okay, number four. Lore. Uh, I'm going to use spelling on that one. L-O-R-E. Oh, dude, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, lore. Because ah, that, that sounds like Google. I'm going to say Google. It's Data's brother from Star Trek The Next Generation. Ah, yeah, yeah, I... Uh, yeah, I know Lamar. Um, uh, what's his name? Um, Lamar Burton from that, but that's about it. And uh, and uh, Patrick Stewart. So yeah, one for four, like Alex Rodriguez without PEDs. Oh, geez, we're gonna bring Alex Rodriguez into this, huh? Okay, last one. Are you ready? I am. Uh, I got nothing to lose at this point. Horsepower to watts conversion calculator. Oh, oh man! Look, now I gotta see—is this a trick question here? So I, you know, I gotta say Google here. I think that the listener right now is screaming Google at me, so I gotta listen to the listener. It's an Orson Welles. Kid. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well. Like Orson Welles, this is like a uh, doomed broadcast. <laughs> it been a war of the worlds if I tried to put that one over on you. Yeah. So what was what was it again? The horsepower to what conversion? Horsepower to watts conversion calculator. Calculator. Okay. Yeah, the calculator was the giveaway. Yeah. So I guess the only legitimate mishmash typing was that one. I wouldn't <laughs> have gotten Starkrove in the uh, search results, but. That was that's gonna go down as a dirty tactic of the airwaves, right there. But listen, I was happy to play the game, even uh, even though there were some crooked things going on. Um, 
Well, Tim, thank you for playing. Two for five, 40%. Uh, on the one hand, that's Steph Curry's three-point percentage. On the other hand, if you're going four for ten while your wife is ovulating, there's no baby <laughs> to spill chili on the floor. <laughs> that could be for the best, though. I guess that's true. You're just saving yourself some heartache. Yeah, I get literally from eating the chili, heartburn. <sighs> All right, last item before we wrap up. The Interstellar Microsoft Paint Challenge is ongoing. Now, I've received a couple of submissions. Both of them are fantastic. For those of you who don't know, the Microsoft Paint Challenge is to win a free Interstellar t-shirt from my Redbubble shop. Here's how you play. Send me a email, an email to tesseract at quantifiableconnection.com. I want you to draw a scene from Interstellar in the most rudimentary graphics program that you have. It needs to use only 64 colors, be saved as a BMP, and arrive in my inbox before July 4th. No funny business, no gimmicks, just me sending you a t-shirt. Uh, if you want to learn more about the podcast or about the Quantifiable Connection, visit www.quantifiableconnection.com. You can also find me at Twitter at quantifiablyconnect, though I am highly inactive, so you probably shouldn't waste your time. Uh, and if you want to reach Tim, you can get him at at Anaheim Assisted Living. Is that right? Yeah, so I'm I you know if I don't respond right away, I'm tending to uh, a, a former resident, but I, I will respond. Uh, I believe the account was suspended because you put your own check mark in the graphic instead of waiting for Twitter to verify it. But I believe you're back up and running now. Yeah, we we settled that matter. I think uh, yeah, if, if you go and find me, there's a lot of fake ones out there, fake Anaheim assistant living. So. Uh, yeah, look for that check mark. Uh, it's it's legit. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tim. I appreciate your time once again. Oh, of course, of course. This is a blast. Uh, thanks to all of you out there for listening. Hope you enjoyed. I'll see you sometime in the next few weeks with another episode of No Time for Caution. Once again, I am not going to do you like the Lockheed IMAX Theater at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., Please stay tuned in a few moments as the end credit suite from Interstellar plays you out of the broadcast. Take care. <laughs>